five, four, three, two. What to do, Pikachu? It's side quest enthusiast and a gaming podcast about the quests we play to be who we are. I'm your host, Kyle V. Hiller, but you can call me Dr. Chillgood out here in these stages. And on this episode, I'm joined by the adventurous, the archivist, the curious. Give it up for Michael P. Williams. Questies of the Land of Enthusia, give it up for Michael P. Williams. How you doing? Man? Hey, Kyle. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. Welcome. Thank you for coming through. It's a pleasure. Um, Before we really get into anything, though, let everybody know who you are and what you do. Cool. Well, hello, everyone. Um, My name is Michael P. Williams. Um, How I try and brand myself is that (laughs) good luck with self-branding. I'm a librarian, I'm a writer, and I'm an editor based in Philadelphia. And I'm also one of the associate editors of Boss Fight Books, which is a series of nonfiction books that are about individual video games. And that's that's kind of what I do, and that's my relationship to gaming. But I'm sure there's more about me that's going to come out over the course of this conversation. <laughs> right. So, I mean, you are the author of the Chrono Trigger book from Boss that, Books. That's right. I am the author of Chrono Trigger, which is uh, book number two in Boss Fight Books. We're already up to book number 28 coming out, so good God, it's been uh, a That's long time. That's quite the journey. It is quite the journey. But yes, I'm the author of this book, which is the second one that got published, uh, which is slightly amazing to me. Um, that was back in early 2014 when it got published, but I've been involved with the publisher since 2013 when it started uh, a successful Kickstarter campaign. So we're approaching sort of the eighth anniversary of the press being in print uh, which is wow it's really amazing it's one of those like way to make 90s kids feel old kind of things yeah right (laughs) (laughs) Mm. yeah that's that's we're in that weird time where it's just like everything that we liked is old now and we're out of touch with a lot of the new stuff I am so out of touch with it. I am hopelessly uncool. Um, <laughs> you know, it, I, I'm reminded that it is the 35th anniversary of Mario, mainly because yep. Nintendo is really pushing me to buy some Mario games, which I definitely bought. But like, oh man, when I think about this thing being still current, still popular, but the sheer amount of things that just fell right off the map, um, I'm I'm grateful that the press I've been working with is there, that people are still interested in my book after <laughs> eight years on the market. Uh, that's that's truly amazing. So again, thank you for uh, having me here, Kyle, and let me talk yeah. about the book. Right, because the book is talking about a game that is 26 years old this month as of this recording. And um, before we get into our first segment, I have to ask... What Mario games did you buy for the Mario Day sale? I, I bought everything. <laughs> you bought everything. <laughs> so <laughs> I have a Switch. I love the Switch. Um, I've been a Nintendo kid for a long time, although I uh, skipped a couple of systems, right? I was NES, SNES, 
And then I kind of sailed through um, N64, didn't really get into it as PlayStation mm -hmm. was coming out, sort of stole its thunder. Years yeah. later, I bought it, but I was just not into the system. Uh, I had the Wii. I loved the Wii so much. Skipped the Wii U and eventually just ended up getting a, a Switch. Um, and Mario Odyssey, when that came out, was absolutely fantastic. So the 35th anniversary came out, right? They did their uh, compilation of the um, three classic 3D titles. That's what um, Mario 64, Sunshine, which I'd never played because I never had the GameCube, and then Mario Galaxy, which I already owned on the Wii, so I'm like buying doubles of games these days, which is crazy with downloadable stuff. So I got that, and I'm like, okay, great, great, this is cool. Super Mario 3D World plus Bowser's Fury came out. I'm like, oh shit, I, I didn't play this on the Wii U, so let's get this. Um, and then I just bought new Super Mario Brothers U Deluxe. Good God, the name of that one is just <laughs> far. So doesn't fit on a cover. No. Um, and that was there. And then Mario Ma Super Mario Maker 2 was on sale, so I got mm -hmm. that. And then, crazily, my husband, who is like a real, like, he's got a real nose for deals, saw that um, Mario battle kingdom with the rabbits i don't have that title in my head either it was like on sale for 15 bucks at best buy so i'm like just all right just get me the game so you know <laughs> so there's like my entire you know switch channel menu is just mario it's games. just mario games yeah. at this point it it's it's incredible to think that these things are still just kicking and that the aesthetic that they introduced you know, from the uh, NES era is still like fun and yeah, cool. So yeah, it's just it's just been Mario City here. Yeah, seriously, it's we could talk about Mario all day. Yeah, <laughs> and it's weird because it's like it's one of those things where anything that's hyper popular like that and is sort of like the default when it comes to when you talk about video games in the same way that if you talk about whatever the default would be in film or or, or in TV or whatever that everybody watches Game of Thrones or whatever. Mm. Mario was just so good, and it's always good. And I just can't get over how perfect almost every game is. You know what I mean? Or just how fun it is, and always is. And my entire front page of my Switch is just Mario games all the time, almost. I have like so many other games, but I always come back to Mario. It's the, the games are are fun and i think the characters are you know I, I hesitate to say there's anything like a mythology of mario but there kind of is and yeah. um the characters are fun and i don't know they're not they're not in your face in a way that like you know in the 90s the console war stuff sega yeah. and sonic was really trying to be like the you're you're a rad 90s kid dude like you don't need this this plumber guy right. and it's and it turns out like those look so dated and cheesy when you look so back at, like what you know it's like looking at like the Chuck E. cheese era of mascotry and it's like good god no 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 and mario just somehow like sailed past that and has become familiar and fun but like not never edgy in a way that uh some you know franchises crash bandicoot whatever tried to be so i just see that as some of nintendo's success and also you know the success of games like again chrono trigger which is just sort of at hand here um not a product that was meant for a specific time a product of its time but not something that was trying to capture a moment and say here's the moment society you know i i, I just watched the sonic the hedgehog movie and i i love the voice of sonic i think that guy's uh, ben schwartz he's got a great voice mm -hmm. on yeah. ducktales and all that but like oh, the so character the character design is just so sega in the 90s and it's like you know 
I'm cool. You're not. Face it. And it's like, okay, yuck. Yeah. <laughs> like that's that's never going to survive long term. Yeah. So um, the, yeah, I, a game like Chrono like really um, really still survives, even though it has those uh, artifacts of its era in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So standing of speaking of standing the test of time here, let's take it back to level one. Okay. And in this segment, I've dug up through the interwebs, technically here, to find one of the first things you put out there in the world. I, I, I saw this coming and I'm like, I don't know. So, oh God, I'm like cringing already, even though I don't know what it is. Prepare yourself. Oh, I'm pre-cringing. <laughs> it's never that. It's never that bad. <laughs> but here we'll talk about what was going through your mind, focusing especially on the what and the why, because it's important that we remember where we came from and also give a little insight to the process to any listeners who might be thinking of embarking on their own quests like yours. So, are you ready? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> just, <laughs> it's just it's just like a shot in the arm, right? Best yep, to get it done. Exactly. That's, that's the attitude I'm looking for here. Great. So, forward to the past. The first chapter in the Chrono Trigger book. I'm going to read you the first three paragraphs that are written here, because... As writers, or if you're not a writer, let me tell you, the first line and the first page are like the last thing you ever really write, most of the time. And they're always the hardest. So, but there's a moment here. I'll read it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kai, lay it on me. I know, I will. An hourglass measures the seconds on the screen of a newly purchased big screen television. The music crescendos. An adventure is about to begin. My sister and mother are downstairs just beginning a hot summer afternoons episode of Days of Our Lives. Me, as in you, I've decided to forsake the people of Salem for a different kind of saga. No, today will not be full of surprise brain tumors, satanic possessions, and the insatiable desires of the flesh. Today is not a day for small-time drama. Today is an epic day. A pendulum measures the seconds on the screen of an old rabbit ear TV upstairs in my room. The music swells. I press start. Michael P. Do you <laughs> remember that afternoon? You know, I I wrote that particular afternoon is more a composite afternoon of like yes. where I was in my life. Mm-hmm. Um and I'm glad you, you know, this was actually pretty painless because I thought you were going to find, like, the the really shitty Pokemon fanfic that I've actually been trying to find for years that I wrote. Oh and I think God. it just got erased on the internet. You know, I think the Geocities collapsed. And it, it, it took my Pokemon fanfiction about the missing no Pokemon with it. I, I, I have tried to find it. But, um, you. so this was, you know, I was uh, 13 or so when mm. Chrono came out. And uh, during that time, um, my mom, my sister, and I were really into watching uh, daytime soap operas on NBC. Mm-hmm. Um, it was not really a kind of thing that I ever thought I would fall into, but they just started watching them. And in the summertime, you know, they're on every day. Um, this was back in the days of, of VCRs, too. So when we had to go to school and stuff, we would eventually tape them and watch them later in the afternoon. I, I loved those soap operas. They were ridiculous. Re- ridiculous but like they never stopped going there was always a new plot point there was always something trying to edge you forward to see what was next um they were bonkers really uh, yeah. but you know when you look at the story structures of them they are so 
they're so wobbly over time because it's just like there's an entire week where two people are having a conversation about a previous conversation because it's like you got to fill up the air but you can't really uh, tip your hand too quickly so i definitely remember like sacrificing time to watch soap operas but sometimes being like i have other things that i want to do i want to play this crazy game and my you know my family we were all really enjoying the shared mythology of in particular days of our lives there's some other crazy soap operas too mm-hmm. uh but you know there was this whole devil possession storyline that was like intermingling fantasy with the kind of like cheesy harlequin romance textures of the soap operas and i'm sharing this universe with my my family but also i'm like in parallel i'm going through these little soap operas that are on my super nintendo things like (laughs) final fantasy 6 that my family would never ever get into right like the medium was too too different for them to appreciate it Mm-hmm. But it just seemed very, I don't know, it, it, it seemed to work for me. There's a whole class of people who are playing these small small screen dramas uh, in different types of media, whether it is their daily stories, as my grandmother used to call them, mm-hmm. or it's like, you know, RPGs that are about like love and adventure and finding yourself and also magic and, you know, summoning beasts and that sort of thing. So yeah, that's, I was ready for possibilities at that time in my life and uh, was kind of just exploring new kinds of stories I never would have encountered, I think, some years before that. Right. So you had plenty of experience with RPGs and JRPGs on Super Nintendo by this point. So Chrono Trigger itself wasn't necessarily a new experience for you. Or correct me if I'm wrong. No, no, no. That that that's all. That all tracks. I mean, I had played. I had um, probably my first RPG would have been. I mean, I guess you can call a lot of things RPGs that really aren't if they have the same feel of them. But yeah, probably I, I Final Fantasy one on the NES and Dragon mm. Quest, uh, Dragon Warrior. I played those. I played the other Dragon Warrior games as they came out. I played other things that looked a little bit like RPGs, and maybe that was just the aesthetic. Like, for whatever reason, I, I consider um, an NES game Casino Kid to be an RPG, even though it was mm. basically just a series of casino games, because you walk around in an overworld and you talk to people, and that, to me, is a kind of role that you play. Right. So, you know, I was pretty well-versed in these things. And then on the SNES, right, uh, Final Fantasy IV, um, then Final Fantasy VI, and then Chrono, you know, Secret of Mana was in the mix, Final Fantasy Mystic Quest was in there. So... You know, I was very familiar with the tropes of the genre. So Chrono wasn't like anything new in a way. It was the next iteration of a thing that I'd become familiar with. Mm. So take me through it then. When you're playing Chrono Trigger, especially for the first time, you know, those first playthroughs, what is different about Chrono Trigger for you? You know, I, I think that when I compare it to a game like Final Fantasy VI or IV, which would have been immediate, uh, and Secret of Mana too. I mean, uh, Chrono and Mana have a a shared history Mm -hmm. of development. But I think those games felt more scripted in that as soon as you start them, you kind of know where you need to go. Secret of Mana, there's a path you must follow. You can't go past it. You can't go behind, you know, uh, beyond it either. You you don't go backwards. You only go forwards in a very scripted way. Final Fantasy IV uh, starts with like a cutscene, and it basically tells you like 
here's the world you're in, here's the guy you are, this is what you do. Um, Final Fantasy VI also has a pretty lengthy cutscene, and then like you're guided, essentially, to move forward a certain way. But Chrono was more like the original Dragon Quest uh, or Final Fantasy I, where like you just get dropped off in a world, and it's like, okay, well, why don't you walk around and see what you need to do? And it gives you a suggestion, like, you know, hey, it's the day of the fair. Maybe you should go to the festival and have some fun because you're a kid. But you don't even have to do that. You can just walk the other way. And, um, you know, you're a teenager on your own. And all of a sudden, you've, like, left your country. <laughs> you are in a completely different continent on the globe. And mm-hmm. none of these things, like, the game doesn't disallow you. You know, you play some games now. And you go in a certain way and something will artificially stop you, like a person will show up, be like, whoa, whoa, now's not the time to go over here. Shouldn't you be doing this? And like that kind of those guide rails, which I don't know, game designers perhaps find useful to play the game that they want you to play. uh, It didn't really feel like that. So I don't know. It's just a sense of openness. Like this is a this is a new world and it's brighter and and more. fascinating than any other world that's ever been created and it's like mine to play with so i i I still feel that way Um, i haven't played the game in a while because almost (laughs) playing it to write this book was probably like the i I don't think i can play this game again (laughs) kind of thing like you play it to death but i I still appreciate that feeling and the music of the overworld as soon as you are out in the overworld and you can just walk around yeah it's it's really freeing so let's talk about that then because with this book um, and, and what, what pushed you to say, Hey, this is the game that I want to write about. Um, you know, I would say it was happenstance. Um, so just to give a little background boss fight books, which I'm now affiliated with, I didn't start affiliated with them. This was a project that was founded by its its editor, um, its publisher and editor Gabe Durham, and mm-hmm. his friend Ken uh, Ken Bauman, who was who has been an actor and a writer, and they were friendly with each other. And they thought, what if we could just make this project? I mean, there's a whole like origin story of boss fight, but um, they decided they would do this project. They got a few authors that they thought would be interested in doing this, writing individual books about individual video games. And I was not one of those five first people. Uh, Ken was one of them. Um, He was going to write a book about Earthbound. Four other people were contacted, people from just all walks of life. There's a programmer, um, a novelist, a games journalist, a game designer. Um, And Ken put them all together. They came up with their five games. Kickstarter was... uh, success and i encountered that kickstarter i don't even know how i think probably kotaku had published an excerpt of earthbound which was the first book published by boss fight and i was like i was just floored by the writing it was ken talking about earthbound which is a game i I absolutely adored i Mm. loved earthbound so very much and uh, i've played it a bunch of times um in my adulthood and his approach to it was like not talking about the development or like Wikipedia style facts or like, did you know gamer trivia, which is sort of stuff you encounter. Right. Mm. Uh, But he approached it very personally and kind of relating it to the world and his experiences and looking at it almost like, I don't don't know if I want to say philosophically, but aesthetically looking at the game as an aesthetic experience that is integral to a person's life. I was just floored by this. So I kickstarted it immediately. I was like, yes, 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 yes. I want this book totally. And so I followed the campaign. And then eventually at the end of the campaign, 
um, Gabe and Ken, I suppose, um, said, well, guess what, guys? Like, you, we succeeded. You have the chance to vote for what the next book will be. And so people started flooding the comments thread about what the next boss fight book should be, the sixth one that they would publish, or like what would be book six. And Chrono Trigger won. And they're like, cool, cool. So Chrono Trigger won. Guess what? We're going to seek an author for this. So they put out a call for pitches. And I was a backer, so I knew this was happening. I'm like, I'm going to throw my hat into this ring. And I had no plans to do so originally. I didn't even know they would do this. But I did. And um, that was, I mean, that was my experience with it. So I didn't choose the game necessarily is that the series of circumstances came up where it was like hey there's an opportunity to write a book about this game and i'm like i love this game and i want to write something uh, i had just been doing like little personal blog posts nothing that was like you know very hard hitting just fun free writing right. and it just seemed like it just seemed like something i wanted to challenge myself to do and mm. so i did it wow that's crazy because it's like you 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 follow this on Kickstarter. You saw this. You shot your shot, and then this happened, and now it's led you to where you are now, where you're affiliated with them, and like that's really cool because it's like it's 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 almost as if it came to you. It fell in your lap in a way, but not really. You know what I mean? Like that serendipity is really cool. I, I mean, it is serendipity, but it's also like inevitable consequence in a way. So, I mean, part of the inevitable consequence part of it was that after college, I lived in Japan. I was an English teacher there and I just had a really, like, I don't know, pretty formative experience. I lived in um, Fukushima City, which is part of Fukushima Prefecture, uh, basically like a state in Japan, right? And Fukushima was like a no- uh, an unknown place. Nobody from outside of Fukushima would really care about them, I guess. No one, certainly no one from the U.S. would really have a strong sense of it, right? Like, mm-hmm. We would think of Japan as like Tokyo, maybe Kyoto, Okinawa, mm-hmm. some of these bigger places, but not Fukushima. And then um, many years later, and I mean, this was uh, not not too distant, uh, not too far removed from me writing this book, there was um, a huge earthquake, um, a tsunami, a nuclear reactor um, overloaded in in Fukushima. And suddenly this place that was like a place no one knew about became associated with like just disaster and destruction. And uh, it was like really jarring for me because I had lived there and um, it just seemed like the world I was in before was suddenly transformed. And that was all going through my head as I was like going to pitch this. I'm like, this this game, you know, I, I started watching YouTube playthroughs really just to get like some, some quick notes down. And I'm like, wow, this, this is all like disaster and rebuilding and trying to thwart these things that you really can't. And it just like really struck this nerve with me. So I wrote about like, I wrote about the, the, um, March 13, um, March 11th, um, 2011 disaster called 311 in Japan and kind of related that to Chrono Trigger. And that was like the chapter that I sent them, a sample chapter, which is what Gabe had asked for. Like, you know, show us what you do with this. So it was very messy, but uh, it eventually made its way into the book as one of the the central chapters. And like, I don't know. Yeah. So 
I could not have written this book if I didn't have that experience, which was totally unrelated to me, you know, backing it on Kickstarter. And if I had tried to pitch the book without that experience, I, I don't know that I would have had anything. I probably could have said, like, it's a fantastic game that's very cool for many good reasons. And I was like, well, sure, anyone could write that book. Right. And probably someone pitched a book that was much like that. But um, had I not had that experience, I couldn't have done this. And so, yeah, you know, you look back and uh, I mean, that's how time works, right? It's a one-way direction. And you sort of look back and you're like, well, it could have only ever happened this way. So Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it kind of amazes me still that now eight years or whatever later, I'm I'm like one of the editors of this press and helping other books um, like Final Fantasy VI, which I absolutely love. We're working on that book right now, but like here I am, you know, tw- you know, twenty twenty seven books later, <laughs> right. still doing this thing. So. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really dope. So to to dwell on that a little bit more, I think there's something to be said about with video games, especially a medium that still hasn't really penetrated the mainstream in such a way that it's, it's, it's accepted. I feel like there have been strides towards that, you know, with Pokemon go in 2016 mm-hmm. and animal crossing last year, it just seems like it's really, you know, everyone's a gamer at some point that's going to happen in the same way that everybody watches movies or listens mm-hmm. to music or what have you. Mm-hmm. But what I think what's also really interesting, the fact that you bring up, you know, the March 11th earthquake, which is a pretty big pivotal point in in Japan. Looking back at that, and then also thinking about Chrono Trigger, and a lot of other mediums too, because I think a lot about about um, how Neon Genesis Evangelion. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the anime. Um, mm-hmm. That movie, that that whole series, the end of the world takes place in 2014, and it was made in the early 90s. So when you look at something like Chrono Trigger, when you go into the future, 2300 AD. There's just this desolation. There's this despair. People exist, but not really. And this whole game is about making sure we change time so that Lavos doesn't destroy the world. Um, my question to you is, where do you see the intersection between Chrono Trigger and the real world? What is Chrono Trigger capturing about the real world that we may not see at first glance when we're just playing the game just to play the game? And instead are looking for a commentary or a theme or something. I think, I think the game, you know, the game starts out again in this kind of really idyllic present, right? Like you, you're a kid and uh, you've got nothing to do, but like fuck around. <laughs> you can go to the, the fun fair nearby and play some games. You can do that for hours. You don't even have to play. You could play this game. You could have rented it from Blockbuster for a weekend, spent the game doing all the carnival games and mini games. I mean, like I had a great time playing this right. carnival game and that was, that was it. And that would have mm-hmm. been a totally like valid experience. But I think it is that this, this idealism you see is, um, is under threat. And you think the, the present's going to continue like this forever, but then you learn quickly it's not. The choices that are being made in the present, and actually the choices that are being made right now in this present, I mean, in Chrono Trigger, that is 1000 AD, uh, you know, in whatever their system. 
And then eventually you do get a glimpse at like 1999, which is a good apocalyptic era, right? We all remember Y2K, that mm -hmm. sort of stuff happened. These big numbers sort of scare us as humans because we, we think about cosmic time, right? And like, right. What, will, what will humans be in the year one million? You know, that's that sort of like sci-fi stuff of the 1960s Roger Corman mm -hmm. films. Um, right. And we we think like well everything will drastically change um, you know H G Wells the time machines humans have become uh, stratified as these like ideal idiots but also these like really crafty monsters um, yeah the, the game just kind of plays with this idea that every era you're in is making choices for the globe that are going to come back so I think I mean that's part of it 1999 A D in the game. One of the little details that I, I really tried to observe was like how the globe had changed over time. And you sort of watch like the continents reshape and move. But one of the, I think, things I really focused on was like I saw that between 1000 and 1999, there was just a lot more desert. Like the forests had been cleared mm -hmm. and they became, you know, these sort of um, non-habitable areas. And I think the game really tries to show you that the consequences of human civilization on the planet are are something you can't ignore and but in the present you ignore them you know you just walk around mm -hmm. you go to your fair the choices you're making right now um are going to affect you later or affect somebody later but you're almost too wrapped up in the idyllic present to ever let that happen and i'm sure someone in 1999 in the game it's full of domed cities it looks like a great place to be it's cool it's futuristic they probably are never thinking that you know we look at all the forests and stuff we lost from a thousand years ago and that's their idyllic present but yet it's it's making it's a series of consecutive choices and i think that's just a relevant thing for us to keep in mind especially now with recent you know recent news on um non-fungible tokens destroying the planet <laughs> and you know you just think like wow these things that are fascinating and fun are, are really going to have some consequences that someone's going to reap which brings it, it, i okay <laughs> I know that's like real like wow this uh yeah not to be so gloom and doom about the future of the planet earth but you know we're, we can't not think about that but I mean it's real too and I think that's the whole point of, of your the, the point that you're making and also that the game is making too that you may not realize when you're first playing it because until I read your book I didn't really think about Chrono Trigger's you know potential commentary around environmentalism or you know just like class wars and racism and all that other stuff that's in this book. Because, you know, when I'm a kid, maybe also 10, 12 years old when I first played it, I wasn't thinking of, I, I wasn't paying attention to the fact that, hey, all the trees are gone or, or, or anything like that. I was just hell bent on kicking Lavos's ass because that mm -hmm. was what I was told is the most important thing. Not really thinking about the fact that, hey, Lavos destroying the world isn't necessarily the bad thing. That's just how nature is. It's the humans that have brought us to the where to where we are in 2300 AD because we mm -hmm. weren't paying attention to the disappearance of the trees and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you think you could speak to that a little bit more? Is just whether or not is it the humans or is it Lavos who's responsible for the future? Um, I mean, it's it. Lavos, so for those of you who don't really know the game, right, it is a, a Lovecraft style horror from beyond that has been 
nestled in the planet of Chrono Trigger uh, since the beginning of it, right? I mean, it's like the molten core of the planet is where this thing is growing. And humans are developing alongside it. Um, maybe arguably, you know, I mean, in the distant past, humans adapted the power and tried to exploit it, but humans didn't invite it to Earth, right? They didn't, they didn't say, this is, this is your planet, come here, we'll use you. Uh, meanwhile, there's just a whole parallel civilization happening where humans develop steam technology. The steam technology becomes early robots. The robots eventually become um, sort of guardian, a global tracking system. And then the future, that's 1999 AD. This is when Lavos emerges from the planet and just devastates things. This is a natural disaster. It, it could not be something that humans would have had a, a way to stop. And yet in the future, which is devastated, there are still cities. Humans exist, but they're not under peril of Lavos anymore. They're under peril of robots, which are the now dominant force that's trying to destroy humanity. And they're, you know, kind of huddled in these dirty places and they're starving and they have technology that keeps them alive. These uh, sort of like, you know, energy chambers, but it always leaves them hungry. So they're just sort of these shells of a culture. But that's all on humanity. They built the they built the things that would destroy them. The planet could recover, you know. It's uh, they never tell you what really happens after that. And had the humans not built their own, you know, <laughs> destruction switch into the the robots that they created to help them, maybe that would have changed. So I see Lavos as one of those unavoidable things that you know. It's interesting because the game is like Lavos is the worst thing that you need to stop. And yeah, like if you could stop a natural disaster like three eleven or whatever from happening, you would want to do that. But that's out of your control. Lavos is out of your control, really. Mm -hmm. the The future that you're seeing that you think is brought about by Lavos was actually all the choices that your society made. I mean, one of the main characters in the game, Luca, she's inventing the first robots. <laughs> She is right. she is planting the seeds that will eventually become this terrible future, and I I just find that kind of uh, amazing, but almost like the inevitable forward march of human progress into a pit, <laughs> yeah. which seems like a good commentary in the game. That you know, as a thirteen year old, twelve year old playing this game, you're just like, cool, I'm going to beat the guys and get all the stuff. But then <laughs> you know, there were adults behind it, people who were shaped by. A culture that um, experienced many human-made and natural disasters. There's been so many earthquakes and fires in Japan, but also, you know, uh, nuclear bombs dropped on the country. So um, from a, a culture that has experienced these kinds of just huge disasters, it seems like the, it seems like that deeply permeated their, the writing of this game. Mm -hmm. Let's step away from Chrono Trigger for just a second, because sure. I know you spent some time in Japan. Mm -hmm. You know, you really got a firsthand encounter with, you know, with people there and the culture, considering all the things we just talked about as far as what is embedded in Chrono Trigger because of this, their creators and how they were shaped by disasters. How did you see that play out in, you know, your time in Japan? What's your understanding of how that shapes people in general and the culture? If you can attest to that. Uh, you know, it's really interesting because I, I don't want to anthropologize, you know, uh, right. um, too much, uh, because I didn't, you know, I didn't grow up there. I don't know how, what makes uh, that culture tick necessarily. I would say that this is 
a society that feels more prepared, even though they know that all this preparation will <laughs> will one day fail, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they they have earthquake drills. Um, the there are there's buildings that are made with earthquake resistant materials. Obviously, they were not prepared for the huge earthquake and tsunami and then nuclear disaster. Um, but there was a dark history of you know nuclear nuclear power um, mm. destroying parts of their country. But I think the preparedness of it is something that I saw a lot more. And, you know, not to be too timely, but um, it was an early introduction to me of people like walking around with masks on when they were sick. And, you know, mm. at the time I, I thought like, this is crazy. And it was almost, almost comical to me at that time, people would sneeze and all of a sudden they'd put on, you know, um, a surgical style mask and walk around. And I didn't know how to interpret it at that time. I most, maybe I thought like it was um, overkill and, you know, maybe even conceptually, I thought it was a kind of like martyrdom of like letting people know I'm suffering with this you know, be kind to me, I've got a cold. But now with COVID and, you know, the the current pandemic, um, which is happening now still in 2021, continuing over a year, a year of this, and the battles we fight with people over masks and, you know, the compliance of it. And now when I look back at those kinds of preparedness behaviors, um, I think, wow, this was a society that like, cared about the well-being of people and really wanted them to be prepared for something that they could not possibly face and knew that preparedness was a collective human endeavor and not just something that like, you know, I think of American preparedness, like the crazy doomsday preppers of Y2K who were building bunkers, but they, the individualism of American preparedness versus that collective preparedness of Japan that was sort of, that I that I, you know, felt like I witnessed, uh, again, not to mm. essentialize the culture, and now seeing that how really unprepared America was for anything that looked like a, dis- a, a national disaster. Um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're kind of messy thoughts, but um, that, that strikes a chord with me right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's... This game has some really interesting meta to it, and I do want to talk about that, but I think before we do that, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will talk about how time may or may not be the thing that makes Chrono Trigger tick. BRB, y'all. And we're back with Michael P. Williams talking about Chrono Trigger. And if you haven't, please check out the book. But this this little this little bit right here is is a big, you know, sweep you uh, at your legs kind of comment here in your book that you wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, just turn the page here. Um, let's see <clears throat> this this game. Is about time travel for those of you who may not know with time travel 
as a plot device in many, many things. There are rules and expectations and tropes that people abide by because time travel and messing around with time is it's a wonky thing. And a lot of people, it's hard to get right. But you um, make a comment here, and I'll read it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chrono Trigger combines the success of both Final Fantasy Legend 3 and Live Alive, which, if you can get your hands on, please play that game, making time travel both integral to the story and historically comprehensive. Time travel seems so deeply enmeshed in the plot that it's difficult to imagine the game without it. Blasphemous as it may sound, however, I believe that Chrono Trigger doesn't actually need time travel to be a successful game. Which you follow up with, hey... I'm glad you picked this book back up after hurling it across the room. Yes. Um, that threw me for a loop. I didn't throw the book, but my heart did skip a beat. Can you talk about that thought? I sure can. Um, so if you like time travel stories, one of the things you also have to like is logic. <laughs> Which is, like, not a thing people are into, you know? I'm like, oh, I, I like zombie movies, and I also like talking about health policies. Like, okay. It's like, you know, I like time travel movies, but, like, we have to figure out how the rules work. That's always one of the things you need to do in a time travel movie. Because they often set up the end of it, right? How did he, oh, yeah, he did the thing, and therefore that thing happened because of the other thing. You know, I think of, like, um, 12 Monkeys, uh, Terminator, uh, anything where time travel, Back to the Future they have their own individual, you know, like rule sets and they affect how the movie develops as a plot. Chrono Trigger uses time travel as a framework, but it doesn't really need it. There's only one part. The main problem in the game is there's this monster that we have to beat before he does something bad because we know the thing he does bad will be bad. (laughs) And it's really pretty reductive Mm -hmm. Um, The game doesn't really exploit the mechanics of time travel in super interesting ways. Um, It sets up a plot point early on in the game that one of your party members, she is the current current princess, they go back in time, she gets kidnapped, and I assume she's never, she's murdered, something something happens to her, and she's never able to fulfill her destiny to be the great-great-great-great-grandmother of somebody, and therefore that person vanishes from the time stream. So in order to save her, they have to go back and save the original, the, the great-great-grandmother. And that's a plot point that happens and then is immediately forgotten because that's not how time travel even really works in the game. Mm-hmm. So it sets up a couple of puzzles like, oh, well, if you get the treasure chest in the past, it will be empty in the future. So don't do that. Um, but then it ignores its own rules by letting you go into the future and getting the thing and then going back in the past and getting the thing and you still got both things, right? So like the game doesn't have a consistent time travel rule set in a way that makes it particularly interesting. It's just a setting for the game to occur. And the worlds that they set up, it's like, well, this is steampunk world, the present. This is medieval world. This is like magic floating continent. This is cave person world. This is robot world. Those are kind of the eras that they all tie together. Um, Those things don't need to happen through time. They could be anything. They could be continents. They could be dimensions. You know, um, I, I kind of thought it was a lot like Legend of Zelda Link to the Past, which, again, uses time travel actually does it not really it just has like a a light world and a dark world which are alternate dimensions that are interlinked and the fate of one relies on the other chrono just uses that 
aesthetic, it doesn't really play with time travel in an interesting way. It just adapts it as, well, what if he were going to the past and future rather than going horizontally across worlds? And yeah, I just, I, I don't think it's a, a time travel game, really, uh, because it just doesn't do anything interesting with the mechanics. And you could have, you could have the entire same story written with just a flip of a switch and like, well, it turns out they're, they're parallel worlds. Like, great. I mean, that was, wasn't that Chrono Cross, <laughs> right? right? There's a, right. you know, like that, and that game, I don't know how much time travel is involved in, the, in that one, but it doesn't need that to be successful at all. The, the, the success was in the, the characters and the setting and the storytelling and the aesthetics, the anime art of uh, Akira Toriyama, the sprite work, the fun of the battle system. The time travel is just like a, a MacGuffin. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the perfect way to describe the time in, in Chrono Trigger. And again, before I read the book, I hadn't thought about that because this could literally all take place in... 1000 AD because we've already created this fantastical world. We can make up the rules. So why time? Um, do you think there's anything though about Chrono Trigger as far as maybe what we talked about before in the previous segment um, that there is a reason for why we use time in this and it's not necessarily as a plot device but as a, a theme or motif device maybe? I think that is the game's success. I, I, if this game had come out at the time it came out with the same, um, the same investment of character, the same investment of of rules and art and you know music, everything, everything that made this game fun to play, right? The fun to play things could have taken on the it's all one big world where you warp between cowboy world and robot world or whatever. It would have been a great game to play. And even now, today, people might still want to play it in the same way people mm. still might want to play, like Secret of Mana at the time. But the time element lets you think about consequence in a way that a parallel parallelism wouldn't. So, you know, in the Legend of Zelda Link to the Past, where there's Dark World and Light World, you don't really think about consequence in the same way. If you do one thing in one world, it might affect the other one. It's like, okay, it's like a puzzle to solve. And in Chrono, the time travel travel stuff is also puzzle-like. Um, I got to do this thing now so I can get it later. I got to I gotta go back in the past and make this guy a nice person. So in the future, he'll do this. His descendant will do this thing that's nice for me. It, it, it sets up little fun things, but aesthetically, if you're kind of reading it in the way that I read it for this book, it is looking at the grand project that is human culture and its inevitable collapse. And you can't do that um, in a single moment in time. You have to look at this broad sweeping view. So it sort of reminds me of um, if you've ever read or any of your listeners have read um, A Canicle for Leibowitz, which is um, a really cool science fiction novel that takes place across three eras. And um, the first era is like, well, actually, I'm not, it's been a while since I read this book, but essentially, you know, human, humanity has survived a, a, a disaster, a nuclear disaster. And um, there are still some prophetic fragments left, but humankind has to rebuild itself from the medieval era. And, you know, each of the segments of the books takes place in a different part of time. There's like the, the new medieval and then the new, new present to be. And then finally, like far in the distant future of this 
repeated timeline of humanity and how humanity has changed as a result of the decisions that the former iteration of humanity made. And I think like that's the that's some of the, the, the cool things about time as a storytelling device, right? Is the long view of humanity and like how commonalities exist in all eras, but everything is moving towards something. And whether that is dystopic, utopic, you know, it's it's up to the individual writer. Most most science fiction thrives on dystopia, right? Because it's almost mm. always much more interesting and fun and textured. But um, that's that's the aesthetic strength of Chrono Trigger that makes it a superior story that could have just been a fun RPG that you play, but the storytelling really survives, I think, because of our anxieties of, of pastness and presentness and futureness and uh, consequences. So yes, it could have been a successful game without time travel and time. But would it have stood the test of time had it not been about time? I don't know. You know, it might have just right. been a fun downloadable that you're like, cool, that was the game I really liked. And it's it's saying something that there's been like a couple of re-releases of Chrono Trigger now um, in 2021 since its original release. Um, you know, what What did you say? <laughs> How many years ago are we at? 20, 26. 26 years. 26 years. Um, and yet there's been what zero re-releases of chrono cross its sequel which doesn't doesn't have the same stakes you know the stakes are not the same as in chrono trigger it's right. and you know again there any number of things could have happened maybe it's just harder to port that game but really you know we can port any old game these days so it's saying something that square square enix now has kept chrono trigger as one of its crown jewels and chrono cross is one of like the lesser TRs in its collection, you know? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and I think um, that's really interesting. First of all, um, I just remembered, Corner Trigger was first released on March 11th, 1995. It was. Which is so crazy when you just start thinking about just, there's something about Corner Trigger that really, I feel like, is evidence of its own illogical presence, if that makes <laughs> sense. Because here's this thing that exists in this particular time, that foreshadows things happening in the future in the real world, but it's based on things that have happened in the past in the real world. And now you're playing this fantastical world and you're traveling through time, but necessarily not with this intention of considering the logic because you can buy things in the past with the money that you have in the present. So logic is out the window here. Clearly. Yeah. Logic's out the window. Cause I always think about that too. Like I'm going to go back in time and pay with stuff with unfamiliar presidents on bills. <laughs> like, right. you know, I can't buy anything in the 1970s with like 2020 money. Right. Like they're like, this looks fake. And right. it's like, <laughs> but, but in the game, like it just has to serve the purpose. Like, okay, well we'll accept this, you know? Um, of course the game is on the gold standard, I guess, too, which, which helps. Yep. Them. Mm. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I first of all, that that date of three eleven was just like when I started researching this book to write it. I'm like, oh my god, that this is just like just the synchronicity, a kind of like un unthinkable synchronicity of of coincidence, and that's what a lot of uh, events look like is coincidence, right? I mean, that is if you think they're planned, then there's synchronicity. But if you think there's no such thing as fate, then it's coincidence. And humans are good at patterns. So we want to see coincidence as meaningful. So maybe I made much of the coincidence that Chrono Trigger was released 
1995. And then many years later, this is also going to be one of the worst Memorial Days for Japan. You know, 10 years later now, mm -hmm. from, the, from the day, essentially, people are, are looking back on it and like, what have we learned? In the same way Americans look back at 9-11 as, you know, where are we now? And of course, milestones, right? Like 10 years after that event is something that seems meaningful. Um, we're a country that celebrated, you know, like a bicentennial. We always celebrate anniversaries of things. Nintendo celebrating the 35th anniversary of Mario. It's like these these big numbers. Um, they they fascinate and scare us. And hmm. you know, we were scared by Y2K because it's like yeah. 2000. That's a lot of zeros, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, oh no, it's a year with zeros. You know, mm -hmm. humans want to see patterns. And um, as a writer, I'm a human. <laughs> I, I think I'm a human. <laughs> I wrote a book, and um, I want to see those patterns too. Um, and it just made it just made sense for the aesthetics of this book. By the way, uh, very early on, I got a you know a fair but unkind review of my book, and someone was like, "I can't believe this guy had the fucking gall to write about 311 in this way." Uh, you know, and his take was it was tasteless. And for me, it was like, well, man, I used to live there and I have friends who are there and, you know, they experienced this. And maybe it's not my it's not my tragedy, but like I feel things about it, you know, <laughs> like right. not not centering myself in that um, as, as a victim, but just someone who observes it and playing a game where consequence matters and sometimes consequences just by chance. I just couldn't help but tie all these things together in my head however messily it was done yeah absolutely i think we really need to start having more conversations about how art does reflect you know the real world in very real ways and it's not always just an escapism and i really do feel like you know when you start thinking about the developers and, and the writers of this of chrono trigger you can see so much of its influence is based on past disasters that happen in Japan. And I think you see that in a lot of Japanese games and movies. I think I remember watching the, um, the studio Ghibli documentary, um, in the kingdoms of dreams of madness, where, uh, Hayao Miyazaki, who's the director of, you know, all, a lot of those Ghibli movies talks a lot about that day, the March 11th earthquake. And, and he kind of talks about how he saw, such a huge shift and just everything, whether it just be with people and communities, but also with how business and money worked, their international relationships. So many things changed and not necessarily for the better. And respecting that is important, especially if you are on the outside of it, because you don't know what that is. So when you're playing a game like Chrono Trigger that has so much to do with you respecting how things are working and you going against that, it's really interesting because it's almost as if the writers were trying to tell you that. And then it's trying to tell people who would write a review about your book, that very thing that, Hey, look, it is important to observe these things because it's not just a game. It is based on real world shit. It is. And, you know, again, I mean, I have to face a reality. I'm a white American guy writing about Japan and not to anthropologize. I mean, I lived there and mm -hmm. it was a weird world for me. Um, and I do write a little bit about that because I felt like I didn't belong in some ways. And that was just an experience I was not quite used to. Um, but from, you know, the, 
the cultural background of the book, the things that inform it. I I couldn't help but connect um, Japan's history of natural disasters and the way Japanese literature media deals with that. And I, I thought it was especially interesting that Ted Woolsey, who was the first translator of Chrono Trigger for the SNES, uh, Woolsey is uh, is famous for his lines. He really punched up dialogue in Final Fantasy VI in ways that people love, Final Fantasy IV as well. Um, he was a student of Japanese studies before he became a translator. Mm-hmm. And uh, he wrote his, uh, his, I think it was his master's thesis, on like disasters as punctuations in Japanese history. <laughs> like oh. I tracked down, so, you know, in my library life, I was able to track down Ted Woolsey's uh, thesis and get a copy of it and read it. And he was, <laughs> I think that was what got him. I, I interviewed him for this book and I uh, also approached him to write the foreword, which he was very kind to do. Mm-hmm. But I also had this thing, I was like, so Ted, like I have your dessert, I have your your thesis here. And he was like, "Oh my god, I've been trying to track that down for years." <laughs> <laughs> like he didn't have it because it was all TypeScript, right? He did this thing in like the the early nineties, right? And he's like, "Can I get a copy of this?" I'm like, "You bet." So I definitely got like Ted Pulsey a copy of his uh, his Japanese studies, you know, degree granting writing piece, and I think that made it ingratiated me with him a little bit, but. Um, all that is really to say that like the people who were involved in this game had a sense of this. The writers lived it. Um, the game's writers, you know, they were they were enculturated to it. They grew up in a country that had had a, a horrific nuclear disaster, many natural disasters, and they knew these things. Had, they knew what they were like, um, and they were acculturated to know what they're like and to narrate what they're like. And then the game's translator had researched the idea of disasters in Japan, and he was very well informed by it. So how much of all this was a product of just the writers and how much is a little bit of Woolsey adding, you know, his own flair to some of the words that are said in the game, but to me now, you know, playing this game for for research purposes or uh, looking back on it, I can't help but think like this was all part of the undercurrent of it in ways that I would not see in other games. I loved Secret of Mana. That was a cool ass game. It mm-hmm. and Chrono Trigger had common origins, right? They were basically the same game until they kind of split apart. You can right. see the character design is is like pretty much oh, these are the same people. Right. But it doesn't it doesn't have that kind of depth. I mean, that's a game where you fight an ice giant who turns out to be Santa Claus. <laughs> it's like okay, well, <laughs> you know, maybe the tone is quite different here. But right. I think Chrono has just such a uh, a constellation of cultural touch points that it, it's, it really feels like it says a lot. Even if it's not trying to say a lot, it's rich and open to interpretation in ways that Secret of Mana, for example, might not be. Not to, you know, lambast Mana here. It's a great game. But it wasn't, it wasn't trying. It didn't have the same ambition. Right. Or at least it doesn't have the same texture that you can find lots of little things hidden throughout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's dope. It's, there's so much backstory to how a story comes to life. And I'm really, I'm so interested and I hope we see more of that, those kinds of conversations in gaming now that we have so many ways to really talk about games. And I think people are in developers are definitely opening up about that on their own platforms, their own blogs and things like that. But there's just so much that goes into telling a story like Chrono Trigger um it's amazing yeah and you know i I mean i 
I don't want to also um, get like nostalgic for an era when games were uninformed, <laughs> but like, right. you know, this game, you know, Chrono Trigger is out in, in the nineties. Um, this was not an era when people thought highly of games, right? Mm-hmm. It's creators thought highly of them. And I'm sure Japanese players thought very highly of them. They were not a medium in the U S that were particularly appreciated. They were mostly, you know, seen as like children's software amusement products. Uh, that's not to say that people weren't giving a shit about games, right? I mean, LucasArts was doing crazy cool stuff with Maniac Mansion and Secret of Monkey Island and all that kind of stuff. That mm-hmm. really wasn't my, my my jam at the time, but um, people cared about games. It just yeah. wasn't part of the conversation. And so when games makers were making games and some of them were putting a lot of themselves into it. And I see a lot of that in Chrono Trigger, knowing that maybe the players aren't going to connect with this, but it's important that I tell the story, right? Like it was important to them to have it in there, even if they didn't expect that it would be written about and understood and interpreted. And as games, as art has become a conversation, it's pretty much a settled conversation that yes, yes, games are art, a kind of art. And um, there's really a lot of good work that goes into them. As we've grown accustomed to that reality, the people who make the games know that the games will be interpreted as art and therefore think about them as products, as art works. And therefore, they're like, they're baking stuff into the games that they hope people will catch, you know, in a way that's like almost manufactured. And I don't want to say this in a way that sounds like it's it's unfortunate that games are so aware that they're a medium that's art, but it's true that games are aware that they are an art medium now. And therefore you have these like, you know, I'm not a triple A kind of gamer person. I mean, again, I'm, I've just got fucking Mario games all over. Like I'm, play, <laughs> I'm just playing Mario games. Uh, my ring fit adventure. I am like squashing little goblins as I try and get something that looks like a fit body. But you know, uh, the kind of games where it's like about, moral choices press a to murder friend or whatever you know those those tropes and you can't get past them like to me that is like a real um it's so artificial it's like the designers of these games wanted you to feel a certain way and you see them laboring to make you feel the way and you know one of those games where it's like the goal of the game is to kill all these things. And at the end, it's like, you're a murderer because you killed all the things. Look at yourself, gamer. You killed. And it's like, okay, this is a little overwrought. you know. And I don't think Chrono came out in a time when anyone had that sense that games would be interpreted this way. And now people are realizing, well, I'm going to get a great write-up in you know uh, kotaku about this and someone's gonna make much (laughs) much ado about all the things i put in nobody who made chrono i think thought anyone would make much ado of them making references to nuclear disaster or the slow progress of global destruction due to human changes they just thought these are neat details to put in there and it's a little bit of me and now someone would make an rpg that's like we want you to feel a certain way and we're glad you caught that <laughs> it's like okay you know so there's an artificiality to um the games games having discovered that they are a viable medium of artistic expression that when it's mishandled it looks so overwrought but i also think like that's the kind of stuff that people will eat up like oh my god did you catch that reference like yes we caught it (laughs) they said it six (laughs) times in the game yeah yeah everyone's a monster blah 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 okay (laughs) i just want to run around and squash some mushroom people (laughs) 
Yeah, I feel that. I think, okay, so let me segue this into my next question, which will probably be the last question of, you know, this whole Chrono Trigger segment. We'll see how that goes because we're an hour in already. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So much is, there's so much talk about, does Chrono Trigger need a sequel? Or Chrono Cross technically need a sequel? I guess actually they'd be more like paraquels, not sequels. Um, Or remakes or remasters Mm -hmm. or something. Does Chrono Trigger need any of that? No. No. Many things do not need remakes. (laughs) Um, Re-releases are good in that they let people experience things as close to the original as possible, right? There's so many like amazing stuff that was only ever released on VHS. And now they're putting it to DVD, which means you can watch it. Moving uh, movies to streaming, reprinting books, getting games ported to different platforms so you can play them. This is what humanity has always done. I mean, it's scribal work, right? We're copying things into uh, refreshed media so people can experience them. So should Chrono Trigger continue to get re-releases? Absolutely. Um, sequels, eh, my, my feelings in Chrono Cross are revealed in the book. I'm sure it's a great game. I just, you know, and I, I watched some footage of it earlier on YouTube because I do not have a, a working PlayStation, anything. It just looks ugly to me, really. <laughs> I look, it looks ugly. I mean, it's that era of polygons. It just mm-hmm. looks ugly. And you'd have to really do a lot of work to make that palatable to a modern gamer who's like, I really want to spend 45 hours looking at all this. Where Chrono has that really, like, I mean, pixel art has maintained its cachet yeah. uh, because it's so clean and you can admire how the work was done so easily. Whereas with polygons, it's a lot harder to see the, the great work that went into the design uh, with the limitations. But Chrono Cross was not the sequel for me. It was never re-released. And Chrono Trigger, it actually already had another sequel, right? The Radical Dreamers from Satellaview, Mm -hmm. which, you know, uh, that's something people can Google. (laughs) It's worth much discussion point. But Chrono had a really actually decent remake, the one for the DS version. The script Mm -hmm. was given a rehaul, even though it respected the the kind of touch points that were uh, Ted Woolsey's translations. But that game had limited space, so Woolsey couldn't translate everything, and stuff just got chopped because it didn't fit. That is probably the most superior edition of Chrono Trigger to play because it captures the spirit of the original on an accessible platform, and um, it's got the a really good text to read. But it also suffers from the same things that remakes always suffer from, which is um, it, it's got bloat. They made some, I guess, some major side quests, but one is just like a really stupid fetch quest, and the other one is a long dungeon crawl. Mm-hmm. It's more like bonus content that actually detracts from the game. And uh, it also tied in some stuff to Chrono Cross to try and, you know, as a fan service to be like, hey guys, you know that sequel that really wasn't a sequel? Well, we're going to explain how it's a sequel to you. And it's like, okay, well, huh, you tried. It's, uh, it, it's, it's a good version of the game, although probably if anyone were to ask which one I would love to play again, it's probably the original Super Nintendo one. Mm. So, you know, remaking it, I don't know that it's necessary. There's so many more games that you could make. But if you're going to remake this one, it's got to be like plus. It can't just be like, we've got we've got two new side quests that are fun. Like, you're going to have to beef up this game and make sure that you know it is not it's not supplanting the original it's a it's a different version of it um i think of something like 
I love zombie movies, right? Um, I love Dawn of the Dead, the like early, is that 79, 81? That one, um, where it's, uh, they're in the mall and they're having a lot of fun. It's the stupid slow zombies with blue makeup on their face. That's a, that is a fun, cool, interesting, social commentary filled zombie movie. They remade, um, they remade Dawn of the Dead in what, the early 2000s. Totally different rule set, changed how the zombies behave, new cast, some tropes from the original, but you can appreciate how the works talk to each other rather than saying this is meant to be the replacement for the old one. And I think that's a lot of problems that people have with remakes is that they see the new one as trying to replace the old one. We've already had like, what, four different Spider-Man series at this point, you know? I can't even keep track. I can't even keep track of that. But um, I I think a new Chrono would have to be, if it was a remake, quote unquote, add some more characters, add some more eras, um, beef it up, take the original thing and like take it to its extreme logical conclusions supersize the thing i mean that's americans also want to supersizing but don't just don't just decorate it with some bells and whistles you kind of have to and and make the time travel actually work i think um take the ideas of the game and reinterpret it but make it sure make sure it's clear that this is um a new a new inspiration of rather than this is the the definitive edition of the game because those remasters always suck so much Absolutely. It's weird because I agree with you. I don't think I would love to see Chrono Trigger be available on Switch and PS5 and Xbox Series X or whatever. I think that's really important that people today can play these games because I've been playing some older games and things like that. And, you know, some of them are emulated. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's also I've been playing Yakuza Zero and I'm I'm really into this game and I missed the entire Yakuza series, but I can play them all on my PlayStation four. Cause I, there's two bundles that has all of the uh, original games up to Kiwami two. And that's dope. And I get to play that. And I think I remember seeing um, someone post a tweet last year sometime where they were, you know, it was, it was someone who was a little bit younger or whatever. And they were just like, mm-hmm. I've never played any of these games, but this pixel art from the 16-bit era is so great, and I can't wait to play them. And there was Secret of Mana. There was Final Fantasy VI. There was another one. I forget which one it was, but I know Chrono Trigger was in there, too. And there were a lot of comments that were, like, you know, kind of, you know, bashing the person for having never played Chrono Trigger. I'm like, well, how are they going to play it? If they don't have a DS or a Super Nintendo, which they wouldn't have because they're barely 20, why are we knocking them for that? That's an accessibility problem. That's we, that's Square's you are problem. So right. We well, I mean, it it is. I, there's actually a lot of problems. There's a lot of problems. That. But I, I would say one from the Square side. Let us have faith in the relentlessness of capitalism. Square will never stop releasing Chrono Trigger on any platform. Many of them to diminishing returns. Right. Final Fantasy VI had that um, really soft, squishy looking port to yeah. whatever iOS. I refuse to give it money, mm-hmm. even though I'm like tempted sometimes to spend some iTunes cash on it. <laughs> right. I, I bought these same fucking games so many times, Kyle. How many times do I need to buy Super Mario 64? I have I have purchased it in four different versions. Mm-hmm. It's 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 not getting any better of a game. It's just me having it on current software 
current hardware that works so I can experience it. I bought multiple copies of books. I had a copy of a book. I donated it to a thrift store. Years later, I buy another copy. Did I buy the same copy of my own book? It's possible. You know, like this, <laughs> this stuff happens. Yeah. So yeah. capitalism will unfortunately keep pumping resources into making more money off of things that don't require much effort. Uh, not to say that people who port games aren't putting in effort, but like it's not a new creative work, right? They're just mm-hmm. setting up a new printing whatever, making the product more available. As for the like, you've never done this, that is one of my biggest pet peeves. I hate the idea that there's a definitive set of human experiences that everybody has to have had in order to be a successful human being. There's so many things that I've never done that I don't really care about. And, um, you know, often it's related to media where it really rankles me where someone's like, I watched X, Y, Z. And it's like, Oh, I've never seen that. What? You've never seen that. Be like, could you imagine that in my many years of life, I had many other things to do than sit and watch this (laughs) movie. And, you know, like I I understand that sometimes it comes from this idea of like, Oh, I really want to talk about it with you, but it's like presented as FOMO like FOMO yeah, bait, where it's like, absolutely. well, I can't believe you never did this thing that all human beings do. So someone who's never played Final Fantasy Chrono Trigger, it's like, I get it. You're 20 years old. How would you? If you've played other games that I've never had, and I never will, these games won't be your touch points. In the same way that, you know, I bet there's people who be like, oh, you've, you've never seen this uh, definitive 70s movie? You've never watched... The Graduate? Like, no, I've never watched The Graduate. Like, oh my God, I can't believe you've never seen The Graduate. It's like, you've never seen, you know, um, the the Voyage to the Moon, the 1890s French classic? Like, fucking no. <laughs> you know, like, exactly. you know, I mean, how, what is the timeline here? How many works mm. are you expected to experience before you have, like, the, quote, right human credentials, <laughs> you know? It's so wild. So, yeah, the canon is a big problem, but also enforcement of the canon by having people say, you know, you really, you you can't call yourself a gamer unless you played, you know, Arkanoid <laughs> at an arcade. <laughs> right. It's like, okay, well, no one's going back to that right now, buddy. Exactly. Get that elitism out of here. Yeah, exactly. It is, it is an elitism. Yeah. But maybe we'll... This entire conversation will be moot when Square Enix Presents comes out on March 18th and we see that Chrono Trigger is ported to all the systems that we mentioned. But we'll see. Because guess what? Even though I'm already playing it um, on my Super Nintendo, I'd buy it again. Are you playing it right now? Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> okay. I, I, I kind of fell off um, once I got like to Magus's castle. Mm-hmm. Um, because, man, that 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 his castle is so grindy and grueling. But... Um, I think I may go back into it. It's one of those things where, like, kind of like how you said in the book, and I'm going to try not to make this a segment here, but, you know, just the whole new game plus thing and sucking you in and how games are so good at getting you to just play them over and over and over again without there really being any new value added to it, which I'm not mad at Chrono Trigger because I almost feel like that's a way of them saying, hey, look at how you're playing with time your own time with this game about time that's actually not about time you're actually not having any real consequences except for the fact that you actually don't have to worry about lavos isn't the problem i don't know it's weird but yeah 
we'll see how that goes. Yeah, I mean, the replay the game is replayable in, in some ways. In other ways, I don't think it is. I mean, I think there's grindy parts of, of any game. I, I, I love the humor, for example, of Earthbound, mm. but there's parts of that game that just like, I'm like, oh, can I just get skipped this part? I hate yeah. this part. I don't want to get through it. And I can't, you can't really fast forward through a game <laughs> in the way you can skip an episode of Friends if you're doing a crazy rewatch. <laughs> right. And we talked a little bit, you know, before the, before the recorded part of this conversation, just about familiarity and uh, we often retreat into those things that we love um, and Chrono Trigger is, a, you know, it, it makes us feel a way that we felt when we first played it, but we experience it through new eyes. And I think a lot of people do that with, you know, they're, they're rewatching old stuff. Um, the present is the richest source of the past there has ever been. There's a channel for everything mm-hmm. um i watch a lot of uh, pluto tv which is i don't even know how to describe it is it a channel is it a platform is it an app whatever it's all the things because that's what multimedia is these days yeah you know there's whole channels on there like this is the growing pains channel I'm like did anyone have such a demand to watch every episode <laughs> of growing pains in an ad supported way like mm-hmm. i don't know but it's there and like we keep mining the past for its value and presenting it in new ways. And it's so easy to, I mean, it, it's got a plus and the minus, right? The minus part is like, it's easy to retreat into those things and only ever watch the things you never yes. love to watch. Mm-hmm. But the plus, and I'll kind of end that on this note, is like, it lets people experience these things they never would have otherwise. So if it gives, you know, uh, if re-releases over and over again, if subscription paid subscription channels let people play these games for the first time then there's a value to it and it opens up the world for people to experience these things so you know i'm it, it's not without critique right i mean that yeah. is the, the capitalism is always reselling you stuff it sold you in the past but it also provides an avenue for people to get on the same you know, framework is you. So yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a messy topic. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a whole podcast. Episode <laughs> that's, that's somebody's book in the yeah, making. Right. Yeah. Essentially. Not mine. <laughs> um, right. TLDR play old games. Don't get too comfortable in your comfort zone. Try new play things. Some new games. <laughs> and if somebody else has to experience something that you haven't just say, Hey, would you like to, and then experience it with them instead of, giving them a hard time about why they haven't because that's not helping anybody um so with that in mind we are going to take another breather we are running long on this episode y'all but when we come back we're going to make things real quick with a speed run brb Alright y'all, here we go with uh, SideQuest Enthusiasts, and we are here with Michael P. Williams, as you all know. We are here, we have arrived at the speedrun, and with the speedrun, I'll ask our wonderful guests a series of rapid-fire personal questions. The faster they answer, the more questions we'll burn through, and they'll have two minutes, and the more questions they answer, the more they clearly know themselves. There is no winning or losing, because here in the land of Enthusia, everybody is a winner. So this is a chance for the Questies out there listening to get to know Michael P. Williams better. Do you need another explanation? You know, I think I'm good. 
but I'm going to have to watch that I don't turn your question into like a 15-minute answer, which is my pattern so far. So, okay, I will keep my time limits. <laughs> Do your best, <laughs> but also think outside the box. So if one question takes you 15 minutes to answer, then so be it. I don't know what's about to happen, and that's the beauty of it. Alrighty. So, let me get my clock all ready here. And Hajime, first question: What is your third favorite video game of all time? What is my third favorite video game of all time? Um, probably it would be Legend of Zelda, the original. Okay. Yes. What is the last game you played? Super Mario Maker Two. I've got a level that's unfinished right now. Nice. Um, what was your second game console? My second game console. I think that would have been the Game Boy. Uh, if that came right after the NES, because it was either NES, Super Nintendo, or Game Boy. Game Boy. Cool. What is the best snack for gaming? None, because the controller gets all gross and shit. But otherwise, if someone's feeding it to me, it's Doritos. <laughs> okay. Um, what is the best Square Enix JRPG before the PlayStation 3, Xbox 360 era? Um, I'm going to go with Final Fantasy VI. Okay. <laughs> I know it should be Chrono Trigger, but it's Final Fantasy VI. Uh, what is a game that you've always wanted to play but haven't gotten around to? Oh man, one it's, minute. It's so many. Um, Phoenix Wright, any of them. Mm, okay. What is a game that you really wanted to play, got to play, and was disappointed by? Ooh, probably Chrono Cross. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Oh, um, no. In a real world RPG, what would be your best stat? Charm. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> is, that a, is that an RPG stat? Sure, it is now. Um, according to your choice of default settings, do you press down to look up or down to look down? Oh. 30 seconds. Oh, God. Down to look up. W what does that say about me? <laughs> it could say a lot of things. No one is not an acceptable answer, but you can skip. Who is your video game crush? Bonus half points if you can name more than one. Oh, my video game crush. Years later, I've realized it is Edgar in Final Fantasy VI. Nice. And also his brother, Sabin, which I really shouldn't get too deeply into. <laughs> no, that's that's legit. Alright, so the clock is out, but I'm still going to throw you the Moneyball trivia question here. Okay. Worth two points. What year did Chrono Trigger release on the Nintendo DS? Was it... Was it 2001? I what, think what was you're it? thinking of Final Fantasy Chronicles. Am I? When I... The last decades have been a blur. <laughs> they sure have. <laughs> well, what, what is the answer? The answer is 2006? 2008. Wow, really? Oh, that, yeah. that, 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 feels, that feels too new. <laughs> right? But it's also not, because that was 13 years ago. Oh, Half no, the time. Oh, so it would have been, like, it's right in the middle. 13 years after the original release. And, you know... 13 years later. I, I guess I was thinking of Final Fantasy Chronicles. Mm -hmm. I, that just seems too implausible <laughs> to me. But, <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I still think of like 2010 as like, yeah, it was just a couple of years ago. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. no. Mm -hmm. No, a decade has passed. Yeah. So that leaves you with a score of 10.5 points. Out of a possible. Well, on a scale. <laughs> so it's, it's the scale is one to self-aware so on a scale of one to self-aware you are 10.5 i'll accept that number <laughs> and i'll spit it in the most positive way 
Yep, that's what, that's it's there for you. Yeah, I got a ten point five on the Hiller scale. Is that something I can put into my? Sure. <laughs> cool. Absolutely. That's that's no rules here. That's a that's a bullet point for me. It's my <laughs> resume resume yep. header. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's got to go with the header. Um. So yeah, that's the speed run. And before we let you go, <laughs> um, the inner game publisher in your life sees that you're on fire, and that they want to make a DLC for the people to play based on your life. And this DLC is a way to define a side of you that people may see as obvious about you, or it could be something that you don't get to share often, but it's still you. If you could name the DLC, what is the name of the DLC of your life? Uh, I thought a little bit about this, and I chose Super Thrift Store Museum Adventure <laughs> because I am a scrounger of stuff, and I think I like to go into weird stores, especially love thrift stores, and find all the crazy shit that is artifacts of humanity, and I'm a collector at heart, and I love to buy them, and I'd love to just establish a gallery where it's like, what did this what did this pile of pogs tell us about humanity in the 90s? Wow. You know, next to some other nonsense that I find. So, yeah, that I would have a definite super collectible adventure. So, essentially, it's a thrift store simulator, but also not. Yes, a thrift store simulator where okay. almost – and, like, you can collect all the objects in a very, like, Katamari kind of way. And each object <laughs> each object has a little placard and tells you a little bit about – I love when items have a backstory to them. Right. Like, you know, and, like, this thing's got some personality. Someone took some, some time to tell me why this useless pick-upable was, was important. It's like mm-hmm. I, I, I love that little bit of context. So that's always been a cool thing about RPG. That's why I collection RPGs, because it's like, I want to find out about, like, the bone sword. Why is that important? Like, I'll never use this fucking thing. But it's like, ooh, they wrote a little story about it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I do appreciate those. That's It's it's such a nice touch. You know? The little flavor text of everything. Like, it showed exactly. you somebody, somebody put in a lot of effort just to think about thinking about it. And right. I appreciate that. Yeah. The minutia. I mean, I, I am also a librarian, so right. it's kind of, it's sort of what we do. <laughs> it adds up. Um, so, well, thank you, Michael, for being on the show. Uh, thank really you. Appreciate it. And um, yeah, where can people find you or, you know, your book? Yeah. Well, um, certainly to find my book, you can go to bossfightbooks.com. Um, we're working on a whole bunch of other books right now that you can take a look at. Um, it's a series, but you don't have to read them in any kind of order. You can read all of them. You can read none of them. You can read one of them, whatever. Um, me, uh, I'm online sometimes at Twitter as uh, at the unfake MPW. I couldn't be the real version of myself, so I went with the unfake <laughs> version, which is the best that I can do. What else am I doing? Um, you know, I'm uh, at Boss Fight. We're working on releasing our, our latest book, Final Fantasy VI, mm-hmm. which is coming out soon. And we're, we've also got some like, secret books in the work works that we hope to announce uh, in the future. Uh, and I'm also just doing some writing that's totally unrelated to video games, and I, I have some of that stuff available um, that I post online sometimes. So uh, if you end up stumbling on them, I uh, hope you enjoy them. Awesome, everyone, go show Michael P. Williams some love. And as for us. You can follow SideQuest Enthusiasts on Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch at SQEcast. Episodes of the podcast are live on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and YouTube every other Friday 
peep game on our website as well sidequestenthusiast.com or sqecast.com if you don't feel like typing all that out or make a one-time donation at ko-fi.com slash sqecast that's k-o-f-i.com slash sqecast every dollar goes a long way to keeping this show alive and elevating voices in the gaming space especially in the name of diversity and inclusion if you can't give share this episode with your friends on social media and leave a review on apple Podcasts. may the goddess smile upon you and remember say thank you in advance for what's already yours pork chop on the beat and we're out see you next time